Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Superbrain podcast. My guest this week is Melissa Hoganboom. She's an award-winning science journalist, a filmmaker and editor at the BBC. She makes and commissions films and writes articles as well as reporting and producing for television and radio on a range of topics, including human evolution, psychology and neuroscience. Her journalism has been recognised by multiple awards, including the Webbies, the Drum Awards, Cavalry. AAAS Science Awards, the Telly Awards and the British Association of Science Journalism Awards. She is also a New America Learning Science Exchange Fellow. The Motherhood Complex is her very first book. Indeed it is. I have read that from the inside cover of your book, from the bio of your book. And congratulations on your many achievements, particularly writing your first (laughs) book. That's a big undertaking. But since your book is about identity, about how our sense of self changes, particularly through motherhood, I want to begin by asking you, who is Melissa Hoganboom? Well, when I set out to write the book, I think that was a question on the forefront of my mind too. And when I became a a mother, I suddenly turned into Melissa Hoganboom, the journalist, the BBC journalist who was, you know, ambitious, career orientated work was my primary identity. I'd say I was always, you know, keen to get ahead when you're a journalist or a content creator, as you know, you live and breathe the topics you write or report about. But then when I became a mother, that identity overtook whether I wanted it to or not for various reasons that I explore in the book. So I'd say um, now, four years into motherhood, I am much more comfortable being Melissa, the journalist and the mother. Whereas when I first became a mother, I felt this clash of identities. So I felt like one was overtaking the other. So that was when I had this kind of existential questioning of who I was, I I guess, if you want to put it on grand terms. So why do you think it is that motherhood impacts so heavily on our identity or our sense of identity? Motherhood impacts us um, in such a momentous way because overnight everything changes. Like obviously you have nine months of pregnancy to get used to the idea and there's already significant biological change and physical change that really Um, starts to feel some people take to it some people find it quite intrusive to have this kind of embodied new bump which kind of shows their impending changes especially if how they change doesn't live up to the socially constructed ideal Um, but I think one of the main reasons it feels so stark is because there's so many expectations that come with motherhood and so you're going into a situation where you have your own idea of 
you might have your own idea. Some, some people, like if you're anything like me, you come home from the hospital and you think, what am I doing next with this tiny baby? But as alongside of that, there's all these ideas of what to do, how to feed your child, what kind of childcare to send them to, how much to work, whether to work. And a lot of these ideals and expectations clash with your own ones. And it's really hard to constantly feel that tug of judgment, expectation, and then internalized guilt at the same time as just getting on with the job of being a parent. So I think that's um, one of the key reasons and it's lots of interlinked reasons that so heavily impacts upon our sense of self yeah and it's interesting for me when you you answered first who you were you know and and you describe who who you are or who you were when you were writing the book and you gave that in a singular you know in a sense that I'm a science journalist or whatever that was kind of your defining identity and then motherhood kind of encroaches on that and of course you do acknowledge that by the time we become mothers we have multiple identities. You know, we're sisters and friends and we're someone who wears X type of clothing or, you know, we have so many identities that sort of blend together. But I think probably what you're saying and what I certainly having become a mother myself also, that this is the biggie, you know, this is a kind of a big defining one. I have to say, now, I don't know whether you were married at the time or whatever, but I found that one a big one too. I found going from being single to being married different. And I certainly found that and probably from the sense of I felt less seen. I felt I became somewhat invisible. I felt at that point that people looked at me differently. And I think from reading you in in that sense, you were saying, you know, that becoming pregnant I know that I wrote right opposite where you said something about being frail and pregnant or pregnant, you know, being fueled as frail. And I, I kind of wrote, why not strong? So I felt like I had to constantly not let pregnancy change me. So very early on, I I made the decision not to tell work until I was, I think, 18 weeks. Um, I wasn't showing, so I was able to do that. And I was kind of in the, had this defiant attitude of, I'm not going to let this change me. I'm still able to do my work as well as anyone else. Um, And I didn't want anyone to think of me differently. And I didn't realize it at the time because I hadn't read the literature. But once you start reading the sociological literature on this, you see that as soon as you become pregnant, you're seen differently in the workplace. And obviously this is a generalization. It doesn't necessarily apply to every single workplace, but you're seen as suddenly less committed, less ambitious, that you have other things you're going to put first, that you're suddenly more family orientated. One sociologist literally said that you are seen as leaky and vulnerable. Um, leaky. And physically later on, we do leaky. Physically later on, we do become vulnerable. And that we're, yeah, it's one researcher said women are open, vulnerable and leaky. literally. Wow. So we're, we feel sick. We lately, late, you know, our breasts might start leaking. The waters eventually leak. Right. And you're kind of show, you're showcasing your vulnerability by this physical presence. It's a horrible description. It's a horrible description, but it kind of, they tie it back to the idea that women are working in a workplace designed by men for men. men. And so often in the workplace, women will act more typically male. I say that in quote marks for those uh, listening to get ahead because the traits we associate with masculinity are seen as the ones that lead you to ambitious or powerful leadership careers so there's uh, there's even studies that show that when women become pregnant they emphasize these kind of more stereotypically masculine traits so that they don't give in to this feminine identity and it's because of these assumptions and it's also why women often hide their pregnancy for 
quite a long time because they intrinsically know that they're going to be seen slightly differently. I mean, a journalist friend who understands all these processes at play literally said, I'm going to wait as long as possible because I might not get assigned the same stories once they realise I'm pregnant. And I'm like, that's shocking. She's like, yeah, but it just is how it is. It's just how it is. And it, it shouldn't be like that. And so I didn't want those processes to affect me. And then as soon as I did say I was pregnant, my colleagues, rightly so, I would say, you know, told me to rest when I needed to and take it easy. But I didn't want to take it easy. Mm. But looking back, I was tired. I was able to function as well as I was before, but it was exhausting. And I'd come home feeling literally jet lagged at some of the time. Nothing left. Exactly. So I think it is okay to understand that, you know, there's these momentous physical changes happening that make you exhausted. You're literally producing food for something growing inside of you so it's okay to give into that and understand that you can still function and still have the same commitments and ambitions and still be the same albeit slightly physically altered version of you yeah I, you know it's fascinating for me reading the book as I'm kind of at another end mine have grown and flown the nests but reading the book brought back so many things for when I was at your stage and when you know I was pregnant and and having babies so like that like you I didn't tell people until I was 18 weeks pregnant I was very proud that I didn't show that I had a flat tummy I continued playing I played soccer was my sport you continued running I actually played in a soccer final when I was four and a half months pregnant you know I was well I checked with my doctor and you know you've always been doing it keep on doing it it's okay but it's just occurred to me as you were just saying that that you may be treated differently in terms of the assignments you, you might be given as a journalist And these are biases. And whilst we've moved on (laughs) in terms of political correctness and in terms of trying to ensure gender equality in the workplace, when I, we had a grade system and I worked in a life insurance company at the time and we had a grade system and I was grade four and then grade five was the highest and then you became a head of department and I was next up pretty much to get the grade five. You had to do interviews, but you were still kind of in the running unless you were poor at your job. Do you know what I mean? You were kind of, well, it mm-hmm. should be you or, or so-and-so that will get it. And I actually remember going for that job interview and I had already said that I was pregnant, didn't know this job was going to be coming up. And I went for that job interview. And while I was in the interview, they more or less said you're the perfect candidate for the job. But unfortunately, we need someone to start immediately. And there's a backlog already. And we just couldn't deal with you being on maternity leave for this position. Mm. Now, that would be unheard of now. It definitely is illegal now, but it happens. There's an organization that outlines just how many discrimination cases there are. And often they're subtle because like if on paper you're a perfect candidate, but so is someone else, who are they going to pick? Not the pregnant person, um, quite likely. And they've even done those kind of CV studies where fictional job applicants applied for real jobs and the callback rates, if you indicated you were a parent, were significantly lower for mothers not for fathers. And the only thing that was listed on the CV was that the parent was a member of a PTA, so parent-teacher organization. So it was a really subtle link. And also um, mothers, if they were offered interview or then job, were given lower pay as well. Mm. So it just shows that it's not an overt bias necessarily. Sometimes it is, but even when it's not, there's these subtle kind of ideas about what mothers do. And it ties into these socially constructed ideal worker norms is what sociologists call it the fact that we're expected to put work first 
rather than our family. And if your work expects overtime every single night, the carer cannot do that. And if the carer is most likely to be the mother, the main carer, which it often is the case, then it's the mothers who have to leave work early and sacrifice their career. Yeah, I think overtly things have changed in that people know what they're not allowed say and do, but covertly it still happens in much more subtle ways. You know, it beggars belief. I don't know if you saw that. I think it was on the BBC. The two women who developed the AstraZeneca vaccine were asked how they balanced their career and their exactly. home life. Like, you'd never ask a man. You'd never ask a man Seriously? that. You'd never. Oh, yeah. Yes. And you also, you'd call a mother a working mother, but you wouldn't say working father, a worker. <laughs> Like it just shows the contradiction. Yeah, yeah. But just going back to my instinctive, you know, reading that where it says frailty and you're viewed as frail and less able. But actually, in fact, being pregnant is a sign of strength. The baby book that I bought at the time, it was about what's happening, uh, this baby inside me. And I do remember around the tiredness because until you become pregnant, you have no idea the tiredness that you do feel in those first few months. And I had always thought pre-pregnancy that you feel tired because of the bump as you get Mm. further along. But it's actually the earlier stages where the real fatigue kicks in. And I remember the book described it as it's okay to feel tired. You are doing the equivalent every day of climbing a mountain in growing Mm -hmm. and creating this baby. And I know that certainly allowed me feel, which is terrible, allowed me feel okay about being tired. Exactly. But what I just don't understand is that having children is an essential part of being human of our species and like why do we not account for that in how workplaces are set up having say worked in science myself where you get funding to do a research project and you have funding specifically for just the team members that you have and there's a push to have you know gender equality and a push to have more women, particularly, you know, in science and then having a situation where that's the only money you have. And then one of the team goes on maternity leave. Now, at least when it was my time back then, when I didn't get the job, we only had 12 weeks maternity leave. Like, so I was only going to be gone for a matter of weeks. <laughs> oh gosh. But now it's kind of up to a year or whatever. So that can completely destroy or derail a project and you've no way out of it. And so having been in that situation, I understand that from the people working on the team perspective and for small companies. But rather than that being an issue you have to deal with that then goes against women, why can we not factor these things in, in terms of there has to be funding, there has to be cover, or there has to be allowance, or it just beggars belief to me, you know, and the same with childcare. It should be available. And I think if you're in a workplace, having childcare within the workplace is a fantastic option. It means that if a child is unwell, a parent can go over for a few minutes and then come back to work if that's all it takes. Depends which parents' workplace the child goes to, right? <laughs> well, that's so. true. Yeah, yeah. But uh, these are really important points you bring up. And it, again, ties back to like who designed the workplace, who puts the policies in place. Why is there such a low take-up of shared parental leave? There's lots of reasons why that happens. Um, I mean, in the UK, it was like, it's hovering at the one or two percent, maybe a little bit more in recent times. And of course, if the higher earner isn't going to have a salary as high as 
they would if they were working. And the higher earner usually is the man for lots of reasons. Of course, they're not going to take time off. And then add in the fact that men who have who have taken time off have reported feeling judged by it. And I'm like, okay, well, just leave that all to the woman then. So it's constantly reinforced from all levels that childcare is a mother's domain, even though we know that there's huge benefits when both couples, whatever shape the family is, that it helps for them and the child in, in terms, even like from basic biological functions, like the more present you are, the more lived experience you have with your child, the more beneficial hormones your brain is creating, as you'll know, as a, a neuroscientist. Yes, you get more oxytocin. Absolutely. And I, and, you know, I love that study. I've quoted that study myself where it's same-sex couples parenting, mm. you know, and your brain adapts and it's from Absolutely. doing, you know, your behavior shapes your brain mm-hmm. and, you know, that applies across the board. You learn how to be a carer. And I mean, really, it is only in more recent times that this sole responsibility of parenting falls on the mother. Because if you go back in time, you couldn't afford to have a fit, strong young woman sitting at home minding babies when she could be out hunting or gathering or, or doing whatever. And I do think part of it as well is interesting. It's something that I've said, and this is kind of slightly a sidetrack, but it's still around societal and the influences of society is that I often think that we sort of took a wrong turning somewhere. Like we've t- taken many wrong turnings as a species, but one particular one jumps out at me, and, and, and that's that we measure in Western society anyway, we measure success by how big a box we can isolate ourselves in. But we're social creatures and we don't do well in isolation, actually. And being a mother in isolation is very challenging. I mean, I was a mother at home alone in a time before there was mobile phones or Internet. And my first baby was a really challenging baby, cried all the time and just never slept. And I would have moments where I had to kind of put him in the middle of the bed and go, please stop crying, please stop crying. Because I Mm. was afraid that I might go somewhere. Thankfully, I never did. But I mean, I remember on occasion having to pick up the landline and ring my husband, who wasn't really allowed to take phone calls and work like this is a whole Mm. different and say, "I, I can't you know, you call mm. about your stress text, but that for me, yeah, like, that yeah. was, you know, I can't, you're going to have to come home. I can't cope today with the crying. Yeah, now, yeah. if you go back to how our societies used to be set up, where we lived in a communal basis, that's saying, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. But it absolutely does. And the thing is that if you live in a group setting and children are raised, that cuts out loads of problematic issues where if one mother is actually not very well or can't cope or whatever, the child still gets parented. That still happens in some cultures. And I remember speaking to somebody, I gave a talk, I think, down in Cork about brain health and then was talking to the organisers and they had helped set up an agricultural college way out um, in Brazil, somewhere way out from major cities or whatever. But he said everybody had babies with them. So if teenage boys went to play soccer with their friends, they would carry the baby down and and that baby would be with them or the granny or whatever. So I do think part of that is, and certainly when you're talking about this identity of motherhood, I do think it's a quite, whilst we know it's influenced by society and culture, it's relatively modern in the evolution of our species. Yeah. Absolutely. Like we've gone from these nuclear family norms now where we are conditioned to believe that we have to do everything. And we means both 
parents, obviously, um, but then this falls more to the one who is at home or who works less and the one who takes parents or leave uh, or maternity leave. So that's usually the woman and all these behaviors are subtly reinforced over time. And it's why women take on most of the mental load. So this is the thinking and the organizing and the planning and anticipating the needs, um, which is all mental work and it's invisible. And there's lots of evidence to show women do most of it. We've lost our village. There's no easy solution to that because a lot of us live further away from our family. Some have argued that childcare is the new village. So, mm. you know, you've got these additional um, parental figures who are raising your children in childcare, and which is great for the well-being for the parents and for the child to get something slightly different. And if, when you look at research done on traditional societies or hunter-gatherer tribes, you can see very different ways of parenting. So there's one that I really loved reading about, the Aka tribe. So the hunter-gatherers in the Central African Republic, they looked at the split of child caring and the men were doing just as much, if not more than the woman. The woman would take the babies on hunts or would just yep. leave them behind with the men. It was the men that would get up in the night and rock the babies to sleep. And this was a real, you know, status symbol. Men would even occasionally give their baby a nipple to suckle on um, just for a comforting thing. And it, it just shows that the ideal mother perfectionist ways of child rearing is a Western construct that sets us up for more stress. Oh, absolutely. Um, more failure. And of course, mothers are more stressed and stretched than they've ever been before. And it makes us less happy. Yeah. And it's a, it's a form of oppression, really. And I'm sure that's not a popular thing to say, you know, because we've revered motherhood. I do think some of it comes from religious contexts, which I find rather interesting, actually. Always when I'm preparing and researching to talk to a guest, I always kind of, I don't know, it's probably an instinctive thing. I always look for commonalities, you know, things that we share in common or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I was really quite surprised to discover that your family, your parents come from a Catholic village in the Netherlands. Mm. And so very, very similar to the kind of Catholic Ireland that I would have grown up in. But it was literally a village in my dad's age. You know, they slept two to a bed in this tiny house and there was 11 kids with the oldest ones watching the youngest ones and the, his mum didn't have much time to, like, mother. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, of course, that was mothering then. It was just a different, like, we, we think of motherhood now as something all-encompassing and we're doing everything all the time and sending our kids to extracurricular activities or constantly playing with them and enriching them. Whereas, you know, in my father's day, there just literally wasn't the time. And so it's no surprise that when you look at like data for how much time parents spend with their children, a generation ago, parents spent less time with their children than they do now, even though there was more children. I just want to ask you, you know, writing a book is a very, very big undertaking. Had you always wanted to write a book? And was it just that this became the ah, now I have the thing I want to write about? Or had you other ideas? I mean, yeah, it was a strange evolution. So I've always wanted to write a book. I had an agent for a few years. Um, we were brainstorming book ideas. And when I had my first, I was like, we, we agreed on an idea. And I, because I've covered science, I was like, right, I want to write something scientific. But I just never felt passionate enough. And at the first, the first time, um, actually, I just had my first baby. And I was like, I can't possibly write a book when I've got a new baby. Um, and then when I had my second, two years later, it was one moment in a horrible sing and rhyme time session at the library. I literally went to it because anything was better than staying at home and trying to deal with 
the two screaming at the same time because you know it literally makes your brain go into fight or flight response as you said so I was like right what can I go to I went to one of these library sessions that I managed to avoid the first time around because they're awful um, <laughs> just <laughs> but I went because it would entertain my toddler and then I met another mum there who had the same age gap and a new baby and a toddler the same age so a two-year-old and newborn and I was like, oh, how are you finding it? And she's like, great, you know, it's much easier this time around because I know what I'm doing. Yeah, it's really nice. And then she goes, how are you finding it? And I'm like, it's absolutely terrible. It's awful. And I said it quite like matter of fact, like I'm, I wasn't struggling with any mental health issues, but I was very stressed yeah. and I did not enjoy the time because it was constantly like running around um, trying to prevent them hurting each other or the toddler hurting the baby anyway. And she looked at me like I was like, how can you say that? How can you be experiencing that? And I was like, why is no one writing about this? Yeah. Why is no one talking about how it affects you? Not just like there's a lot written about mental health and there's a lot written about child rearing and tips and tricks. And I was like, I need to write about this because I didn't read those prescriptive advice books precisely because they're full of conflicting advice. So when I decided to write about it and I was like, I need to explore if there's any science to back up this identity change I'm feeling. I found out that there was. I felt very conflicted to be writing about the identity that I didn't want to consume me. So that was a bit of a strange reckoning. And I, I almost felt like when I explained what I was writing about, I was like, oh, I'm writing about the science of identity change. I'd almost hit the fact that I was writing about motherhood because motherhood is a, a topic that isn't necessarily seen as serious. It's seen as a, a feminine, girly, womanly thing, but it's absolutely serious. And it's seen as like an everyday, ordinary event. But I try to argue in the book that it's extraordinary, the changes we go through. So we need to write about it and validate how we're experiencing so actually writing the book has definitely empowered me to feel like I'm now writing a monthly parenting column for my team at the BBC. I love to talk about it now. I want to, you know, write a follow-up book. And so I feel having written it, it's kind of taken me on this journey where it's helped me mold my identities together, which has actually been really cathartic. So now I absolutely realize I can be both a career-driven, ambitious um, woman and I can be a mother and the two don't always have to align and that's fine and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't but by understanding why and how I changed it actually really empowered me to kind of appreciate the struggle and the joy at the same time. It's a very empowering book. I think, number one, the first thing you said that, you know, for anyone listening, if you do want to write a book, it is really, really important that you write about something that you're passionate about. It's a tough process and being passionate about something and something that you're naturally curious about if it's a nonfiction book, you know, because there's really mm -hmm. exciting and really insightful information in this book. And whilst it's the motherhood complex, I mean, I think it's a book that any woman should read. I mean, men should read it too, but, you know, I'm not sure they're going to pick it up and read it. Maybe they will to try and understand what's going through. Quite a few men have read it, actually. Yeah, have they? Surprised. Yeah, yeah. I will put my hands up there that I was probably making a very gendered statement. I, I seem the same. Honestly, I, I felt the same. But yeah. Um, yeah, I think having writing about an experience I was living in certainly made it easier to do because I was living what I was finding out. I was like literally uncovering what was going on at the time it was happening. Yeah, and I think that will be very exciting for readers, whether you've never had a baby, whether you're wondering whether you should have a baby, whether you're going through motherhood, whether like me, you've been through it and it's a long time ago. I firmly believe, and it's what I do, is, you know, I explain how the brain works to help people understand themselves 
better. And I just think that's empowering. If I understand why I'm feeling something or why this is happening to me, I then feel, okay, I can either accept that's okay, or I actually have a a route to change it or to do whatever. And I think it's really important as well. You know, I mean, it does cover a huge amount around societal expectation and those kind of things. And I think that's important for people to realize that, you know, these are just new constructs. These are just new notions. These haven't been around forever more, which certainly in my younger days, I would have thought that that's always the way it has been. So it's fascinating from that perspective. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. What I wanted to talk to you about as well, and I, and I won't miss this, this one lovely anecdote in your book. You said, you know, just even in pregnancy, you worried about being taken less seriously in your job. And you eventually said that you had become pregnant. And on the day that you announced it, you had this mega interview <laughs> with Sir David Attenborough, who sounded like he was the most wonderful individual in the circumstances. Amazing that you bring this up because I sent him a copy of my book um, the week before it was out. And three days later in the Post, I got a handwritten note from him saying thank you for my book congrats and all the best luck wonderful so it's because I wrote him a little note saying you're featured in chapter one the reason why that was the day I told my team was because my team was split between Bristol and London and I was like it'd be nice to tell them in person because otherwise it'd just be over the phone this was pre the days when Zoom was you know normal so we had this big session and I was like okay it's 18 weeks by now I'm I'm probably going to start showing soon I've got all these doctor's appointments it'd be nice to tell them in person and everyone was very congratulatory you know parents on my team nobody batted an eyelid really so this internal struggle I was having with telling was definitely partly in my own head partly because of some of the reasons we discussed regarding how you're then seen and my colleague at the time I guess he was perhaps a bit nervous and wasn't sure what to say to Sir David I don't know what was going on in his mind but one of the first things he told him was oh and she's pregnant by the way Sir David was like oh well well don't lose her Um, you know she's really good and you probably knew I was nervous and was being very complimentary and that way that he just is super charming but um, it just sat very uncomfortably with me so I enjoyed the compliment but I didn't want the fact that I was pregnant suddenly to be a talking point when I was there to interview a national hero and I was super nervous it was live there was no pre-recording oh really it was live for our um, social media audience so we, we had like a super small crew he was 
Atle allowed us to do it in his home because we didn't have a big camera crew. And so uh, it was, you know, a career defining moment. And so it was like this perfectly symbolic of one of the reasons I wrote the book, because it was that personal identity intruding on huge career proud moment for me. And so that was, it, it was a nice way to write it. And if my colleague listens to this or reads it, you know, it was absolutely nothing that he did wrong. He was just sharing some really nice news, but it was that internal. It would have been just at the forefront of his mind because he's exactly. just been told, you know. As, and he was, as... exci- he was excited for me. He's recently become a parent. He was excited for me and was happy to share it. And I was happy to share it. And so, but b- because it was that specific moment, it felt quite jarring. Yeah, I think we have this sense in our head and it comes from oh, oh gosh everything that we have in our head everything that we think is subject to multiple influences our own experiences whatever but we do have this thing that there's somehow an either or or that like what goes through my head when you say you know this career defining moment and it's almost you can hear people saying you know oh she's brilliant she's doing so well she's at the peak and then she went and got pregnant you know mm-hmm. it's like almost you've put a spanner in the works you were doing so well and that's terrible And what's awful then, I think, at a time, as you said earlier, and you alluded to earlier and you talk about in the book, at a time when you actually do need to rest for your own health and for the health of your baby, and at a time when you may also be dealing with things like nausea and other various things, and you call it mum brain, brain fog, and I'll I'll talk to you a bit more about that uh, later on, because obviously I've written a book called Beating Brain Fog, so um, Mm -hmm. that is of interest to me, but At that point, many of us feel compelled to work even harder and to show that this is not having any impact, whereas actually we should be empowered to say, I'm really good. In order for me to continue to be as excellent as I am, I need to sleep a little longer than I used to and I need Mm -hmm. to do X, Y, Z. And actually, to be honest, now that I know things that I know from neuroscience, actually, if we did take those rests and if we did listen to our body, we would be able to work in the same way. I think we actually try and push ourselves to do more, you know, that proving. Mm -hmm. And I think time and again, what comes up in your book is around the issue around perfectionism. And I was certainly brought up to think that perfectionism was a good thing. And it is definitely not a good thing from any perspective. It's not good for your mental health. It's also not good for your efficiency and your effectiveness in whatever role or job you play. But I think when it comes down to those particularly early stages of motherhood, I mean, I remember... I can't even remember why I was at the doctor, but I remember the doctor saying to me, you know, Sabina, your house doesn't have to be spotless. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. You're raising a baby sort of thing, but it is that sort of, I don't know, want everything to be, you know. Yeah. There's definitely that super mum thing. And I think when you're pregnant, I think it's being pregnant is so all consuming because there's so much going on in your body and you're kind of getting your head around this. But then trying to balance that with your identity because your thoughts and your feelings are overtaken Mm -hmm. by that. There's one other thing around that, and I think it was in that chapter around pregnancy. And it's a very, very important point that you brought up. And I just want to say it aloud for the readers that all this stress that we put ourselves through when we're pregnant or even in the early stages of motherhood is not good for your baby. Mm -hmm. Um, And you write about it in the book. The impact of stress on the unborn child is quite substantial. We're talking about prolonged stress. So if, if someone's a little bit stressed, that's part of everyday life, but definitely prolonged stress. 
Yes. And I say that time and again, yeah, yeah. you know, in my podcast and in my books, there's nothing wrong with stress. We need stress. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that motivates yeah. us to achieve our goals, et cetera. But poorly managed chronic stress is exactly. probably what we're talking yeah. about. There's links between if there's prolonged stress or depression in the mother, it's more likely to result in infants that have mental health issues and stress as well. If mothers are really stressed and if that results in postnatal depression, they actually respond differently to their infants' cries. Their brain is activated in different ways to a way that they're not quite as in tune with their infants and then the infants pick up on that. So there's all these kind of links that the mother and the baby's brain are meant to work in tandem together. They listen to each other. The mother's brain during pregnancy changes significantly and in a lasting way, in a way that helps her bond with her baby. And then hormones give her a good kickstart and then exposure and experience kicks in, which is when, you know, all partnership, biological or otherwise can experience beneficial brain changes. So obviously if there's a process at play that's affecting that, it's going to affect the brain in a time for the infant when it's literally molding itself to the environment. So it's also important to note, as you probably mentioned all the time, the brain is plastic, the brain can constantly change. So it's recognizing that that's really important. And then this kind of comes back down to what you were saying about the village. If you have support, if the mother or isn't doing well mentally, and the father steps in, that can actually mitigate some of these negative effects. So having that support is not only important for the mother's well-being and happiness, and obviously the whoever she's living with or her partner, but also for the child in a lasting way. So it just goes to show once again that reaching out for support and help is so important if you feel you need it. I think it's critical. Yeah, it is critical. And it is, it's, it's not about failure. It's about understanding that you need support to do whatever or to get over a particular period. And anyway, I don't believe that parenting is a singular job. You know, it's a 24 hour mm-hmm. day sort of thing, really, in the initial stages. So it's something that requires more than one person. So you're not incapable if you are alone and you're struggling. Mm-hmm. That just means you really need more people to help. It's more fun with people yeah. right like I have so much more fun if I've got friends around in the afternoon even if my kids are acting up and shouting or screaming it's like it's easier to deal with it you have this extra buffer and it ties into a lot of research we know about what makes you happy social connections yeah. are literally how we evolved and are so important for our well-being and it's the same when we're parenting if we have supportive friends family people around us that buffers us from this stress, it's hugely beneficial. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the thing is, you mentioned that the brain is plastic. So that neuroplasticity just describes the brain's ability to change with learning. And those beneficial changes around bonding, et cetera, that you talked about, releases of oxytocin that help you to be a better parent, you know, that's your brain adapting to the new situation and to learning. And also, I think, prioritizing the bonding over some other functions, which I'll come back to talk about in terms of the brain fog. But I I think it's also important to remember that as much as the brain can be adaptive, it can also be maladaptive. So this is, I think, where things like when chronic stress gets out of control, basically what can happen is that a developing child, a developing infant actually learns maladaptive ways to respond to stress. Their stress response kicks off sooner than it should, or even doesn't kick off when it should. So that's as important to kind of watch out for. And I think that's where those things kick in. And obviously, if a pregnant woman is chronically stressed and there's cortisol and adrenaline circulating, they are going to impact on the baby. 
So talking again about what you referred to as mum brain, and in fact, you actually say the myth of mum brain. And this is the one point I would argue with, and I would say that it's not a myth. Brain fog very definitely exists. I think that possibly we hear it spoken about in a sort of a derogatory way, in a sense, and we do that ourselves. Oh God, I've pregnancy brain or I've, you know, Mm -hmm. and this happens in other periods of life as well, not just that. But I think that perhaps it's talked about without actually acknowledging the other changes that happen. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, that the brain actually is focusing in another area. I think that, and you do, of course, allude to this, you sort of point to all the various factors that contribute to brain fog. Of course, so many of those are associated with pregnancy. So the disrupted sleep, the stress. In addition, you could have an iron deficiency. Perhaps you're not eating properly because or regularly because of the infant. Perhaps you're not getting out to get the exercise that you used to get. Furthermore, you're not actually most probably. And I think that's the hardest thing about being at home minding children in a way is that you're not getting the adult mental stimulus. Now, every one of those factors that I have listed all contribute to brain fog. So they Mm -hmm. are kind of come together really around motherhood. But then on top of that, you do have the hormonal changes. And we tend to think of estrogen and testosterone as our sex hormones, but they're involved in very many other of our activities. And you actually have a lot of estrogen receptors in your hippocampus, which is involved in learning and memory. So I think on top of that and the culmination of those things can give rise to brain fog. So if you're actually getting your sleep and eating healthily and exercising, you may have minimal impact from the hormone Mm -hmm. hormonal issue. But however, unfortunately, we tend to have a Mm -hmm. chaotic kind of life and time. And we see that also like in PMT, you know, before you have your period, we often see signs of brain fog. But for me, certainly that would manifest in my spatial navigation. So I would become more clumsy. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and that's a symptom of brain fog that a lot of people won't link to. But I kind of write all about that, you know, in my book and around pregnancy as well. I have a whole chapter kind of on the influence of hormones on it. I think it's more that the mum brain is used in a derogatory way. So obviously there is studies that show cognitive decline, but the cognitive decline that is being measured is not necessarily the brain regions that you're using during motherhood. And so there's other research that shows there's these optimized areas in terms of empathy and emotional regulation. And so I think it's not helpful that it's, of course, it's, it's important to understand that there's times that, you know, our, our memory might be a bit more vulnerable, but putting it as a light way of poking fun at pregnant and women and mothers that they've become stupider. And that's what my issue is with the term of mum brain. Yeah. I use an umbrella term and I just refer to brain fog because it affects, a, yeah, that you know, you know much more. And But actually, if you were to use a clinical term, you would use cognitive dysfunction. And I would okay. use that rather than cognitive decline because the inference from cognitive decline, we'd use that term with aging because mm-hmm. it's as if it's progressive. However, with brain fog and with cognitive dysfunction, it is most generally temporary. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of other factors that would feed into it. You know, it's associated mm-hmm. with various autoimmune disease, also associated with depression and anxiety. You know, yeah. so you kind of have multiple factors. And in addition, as you said, a lot of women take on the mental tasks, the planning, the organization. They're all executive mm-hmm. function skills. So mm-hmm. they can really be disrupted. And that can add to a mental fatigue and Mm -hmm. mental fatigue is very different to physical fatigue and when you are mentally fatigued you actually have a distorted 
perception of your own endurance levels. So you yeah, think you are sense. less capable of doing some things. So I just think it helps people if you can understand those things you say oh that's what's going on okay right mm-hmm. I really do yeah, need to yeah. prioritize my sleep I really do need to kind of eat regularly you also speak about the pill mm-hmm. um, and I'd love you to kind of talk about that and I think a lot of people listening may be unaware that the pill yeah. can impact on brain function yeah the pill changes many things in the brain and it's very subtle and I've talked to friends who are on the pill who understand this and it's important to know that you know for whatever reason you're on the pill some people go on it because it helps regulate their mood according to a friend of mine and so it's a personal decision right but there's studies to show that you're attracted to different people when you're on the pill versus off the pill the way you process emotions and certain tasks are different for pill users and non-pill users and if you're ovulating you have as you alluded to fluctuations in your cycle times when you're processing it's slightly different and you you describe slight brain fog before your menstrual cycle when you're in the pill all those hormonal changes are evened out they're gone you don't get those natural fluctuations and so you might process emotions differently you might process certain stories differently so it's really important to understand that there are different processes that your brain goes through naturally and when you're on the pill those are gone and I thought it was interesting as when I was learning all about the pill in my undergraduate degree shortly after that I went off the pill because it scared me yeah and about half a year later I met my husband and I like to think if I'd been on the pill would I have been as attracted to him I mean the results are small they're really really small um but you know even the way we smell our partners is affected when we're on the pill versus off it see the thing is I think people don't really realize the influence that hormones have so basically your brain controls pretty much everything it's bi-directional your behavior influences your brain and the chemical messengers of your brain are neurotransmitters a lot of people will have heard of things like dopamine and serotonin and all that but then your hormones are the other chemical messengers and the thing is So whilst neurotransmitters are involved in the immediate actions that you take, hormones, their responsibility, you have hormone receptors for lots of different hormones almost all over your body. And so the responsibility of hormones is to ensure that your entire body is on the same page about whatever Mm -hmm. it is. And so our hormones play a huge role in absolutely everything that we do. And you were talking about the pill. If you're naturally cycling, when you ovulate, you find different people attractive than when you're Mm -hmm. not ovulating. So your point is there, even as you know yourself as well, though your libido changes across Mm -hmm. your cycle. And I think sometimes we kind of lost touch with some of those things. Whilst the pill and birth control is hugely liberating for women, I think Mm -hmm. it's also incredibly important that people actually realize the influence that it is having on your brain and your body and and moving from one pill to another. And I've taken a lot of your time, so I'm I'm conscious of it. But you have a chapter called Happy Baby, Happy Mother. When I read that chapter, I said, no, I want to switch that around. Happy Mother, Happy Baby. Putting yourself first is not selfish. It's sensible. It really Mm -hmm. is. And so flipping that around. But your book for people listening, it's a combination So there's lots of science in it, but it's told in a really, really accessible way. But also you tell your own story throughout it. So it's a really enjoyable read, just in case people think because we're just talking the science part. You know, this is interesting. It's a really enjoyable read. But you actually talk about your own childhood in this chapter and 
I think you said that your brother, if I'm right, said he wished there was a pill that you could mm. take so that you could stay children forever. Yeah, now, yeah, that yeah. said to me, I said, oh, my God, you ha- must have just had a lovely childhood. I don't think I could say yeah. that about my childhood. <laughs> yeah, we had a quite idyllic upbringing. We, were li- we lived on this island called Tessel off the north coast of Holland. You could cycle around it in a day. You were a 10 minute walk from the beach. We'd go to the beach every day. And it's it's that time where you could play every day and we were playing outside. It was pre-screen times, obviously, often entertained each other. So we were quite content children. It wasn't, obviously, when we were young, it was super stressful for our parents as well (laughs) for similar reasons. But it led me to think about how different cultural ways of bringing up children is because um, I grew up in, in the Netherlands and I know that it's often been dubbed one of the country with the happiest children in the world. It always scores high on happiness yeah. indexes. And so I wanted to understand what it is specifically about the way families raise their children and how that differs. And so I, I spoke to a few happiness researchers and they said there's this key emphasis on not achieving the top. So in the UK and in the US specifically, it's quite an individualistic culture where being the top is the best. You know, parents buy toys that advance their children cognitively. When, you know, as a neuroscientist, the whole world activates and stimulates your brain. You don't need specific toys. Yeah. And that applies um, to adults that, too. So buying brain training, playing brain training games is really kind of a waste of money. You should just be out experiencing the world. You know? Absolutely. And because of, it's a cultural norm where being average is accepted and fine. In fact, it's seen as, you know, faux pas to boast or like to talk about the best grades you get at school rather than saying you know you got an A or a B you say I passed and that's congratulated you don't talk about well great it's a pass fail culture obviously there are leanings towards a more individualistic style of intensive parenting there but on the whole there is less of that kind of competitive nature and Dutch children sleep more than other children, Dutch parents sleep more. Yes, and they're happier than US children and they're easier to soothe. They smile more, they laugh more, they cuddle more. That was brand new information for me. You know, I wasn't kind of aware, you know, and you have another chapter called The Secret of Success and really it is that the Dutch have it. They have it sewn up. I mean, I remember when I was studying undergrad psychology and the understanding different cultures, you know, and I really feel we, we really do need to teach anthropology in primary school and you know, let kids understand the the ethnocentric perspective that we have Mm -hmm. and and broaden their horizons. But I remember kind of learning about Japanese cultures and their babies were quieter and kind of cried less. But I hadn't and I wasn't aware about this thing in the Netherlands. And I love this idea. But given that you grew up in the Netherlands and there's this greater focus on average, Certainly reading your book, you would definitely come across as having perfectionist. I only lived there till I was six. Oh, right. (laughs) But your parents came with you. (laughs) The culture changed, of course, when your culture changed. Actually, how did that fit and feel? Was that very strange? Well, I was young enough that it it was an exciting move. And, you know, I learned English within a couple of months because the brain at that age just absorbed language. Exactly. And then I went to quite... um, I'd say a liberal hippie-ish school. Uh, It's called a Steiner Waldorf school where the emphasis is on play. And um, again, it's not academic success isn't emphasized, but then, you know, I guess I've just always had this natural ambition. I don't know where it came from. Could be cultural related. It could just be 
something myself. Um, and it could also be the job I ended up in, right? I ended up in journalism where everything is very competitive and you have to constantly strive for achieving a certain measure of success and success in quote marks, uh, because otherwise you might not get ahead. So I think that kind of pressure also. But I think it's entirely different if that matches with inherent the satisfaction that you feel. So if you have a natural curiosity yeah. for something, you know, it enhances learning, but you get intrinsic satisfaction yeah, yeah. out of it as well as the external awards. Absolutely. Does that make sense? I think so. I think I understand the difference between success and happiness and ambition, but I also think like talking about perfectionism, I do have those influences of trying to do the best for my children, but I've also constantly got like my mother's voice and my brain uh, telling me, you know, you don't need to stimulate your children. They don't need stimulating activities. Just take them outside, let them play. You don't need to constantly play with them. You know, they need to learn to play by themselves. It will help them and you later on. And it turns out research backs that up. The more you um, like get too involved with their play, the more they lose the creative way of doing it themselves. And you're actually interfering with their imagination in some way. Obviously there's a balance as with all these things. So I still think I have, when it comes to parenting, I do still have that cultural influence. I'd say from my mother a lot um, in terms of the fact that I'm okay with essentially letting my children learn things for themselves and not getting too involved and not trying to encourage my daughter to start learning to read before she needs to and those sorts of things are still a leftover luckily from my yeah and maybe from your schooling where the focus is on play there's so many fascinating chapters in this I mean I really just touched the tip of the iceberg you call one of the chapters techno technoference 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 and I thought there was just one interesting anecdote in terms of the white noise yeah and one discovery that you made yeah I had one of those uh dream sheep things that plays the baby's heartbeat and it's meant to a play plays kind of that womb sound and it's meant to help the baby sleep and then we had white noise on our phones that we used to put beside our baby our firstborn's um ear when she napped because it instantly helped switch her off um and then I was at this conference and I was speaking to this quite well-known neuroscientist called Nina Krauss and she studies like auditory processing and music and learning and language I was interviewing her about something slightly unrelated and she talked about how exhausting noise is in our life. And I think a lot of us have recognized that now we're working from home a lot of the time we have less interference. Like every time there's noise in the background, right? A part of your brain is processing that noise. And I said, oh, that that makes me a bit concerned. What about white noise? My, My first was then nine months old, I think. She's like, oh yeah, and white noise is completely terrible. You know, you're essentially teaching your baby that noise is meaningless because you're assigning them this noise in their environment that isn't giving them any meaning about the world it's just blank white noise and as well as that she says that these apps are often too loud for their fragile ears and I was like oh no it's instantly something to feel guilty about (laughs) I know I know and that chapter on guilt guys yeah it'll resonate with so many people and even when I was reading some of those things some of my old guilts came back up from when we were kids you know and I have to keep trying to say to myself over and over again it's one of those lines I trot out but guilt serves no purpose you either learn from the experience and you don't do it again but the actual feelings of guilt they have Mm -hmm. no function but they have impact and I think kind of uh, letting them go it's a learning curve look you know the thing is you're very early in your journey on parenting I'll let you know that no matter how perfect you are and how hard you try you will still screw your children up in some (laughs) shape make or form but that's what creates 
humans, isn't it? Your point is you can't mold people into how you expect them to be, right? I'll tell you one anecdote you'll enjoy. So I was having a particularly stressful afternoon. I was, I think my husband was working or away for whatever reason. I was trying to cook my like then one and a half year old was trying to touch everything, you know, at risk of burning himself. And I, he was like, he, he got every chair and comes and stands right next to me. And I was like, I shout at him to get away because it was dangerous for him. It was messing myself up. And I was just feeling very stressed. Like they were, they were constantly in my ears and shouting. Um, and so my then three and a half year old goes, mommy, I know that you're stressed right now, but you have to say sorry, like parrots, because she knows when you say it, you scream, you say sorry after you scream or you shout. Um, and she was parroting what I told her before, because when I lose my temper, sometimes I would say, I'm really sorry, son. And mommy's just a little bit stressed right yeah. now, because when you scream, scream, it makes me stressed. So let's try and not scream. So I try and explain to her what I'm doing. And then to hear that parroted back at me, I was like, oh, no, what have I done? I know, I know, I know. I remember when we got our youngest, you know, they're sitting in the chair and you could get this thing that suctioned on to the front of them that was a, a steering wheel of a car and it had gears and it had a horn in it and whatever, you know, that you could beep, you know, and he was only a dot because he obviously wasn't even speaking probably. In the car, first journey, we're both sitting there and, you know, he's making the steering wheel noise and then he hits the horn and he goes, oh fuck you, just fuck you. Oh, no. <laughs> Which was clearly what he thought you said <laughs> yeah. when you beep the horn. Yes, they do parrot. They learn an awful lot of stuff. So you have to be very careful. I remember speaking to a teacher once in primary school and he, they said, look, there's no greater entertainment than what four and five year olds tell you about what goes on at home. Um, you know, they're kind of full of it. Thank you so much, Melissa. This has just been fascinating talking to you. Your book, The Motherhood Complex, the story of our changing lives lives is a fantastic read go get yourself a copy and I think it's amazing that you've written a book while you do have young children you know it's challenging to kind of get that focus but I firmly believe if you want something done ask a busy woman it's a phrase I heard years ago and I think it's very true true, you kind of make the time for it so I just want to leave with you know, this podcast is about surviving and thriving in life. And this book is definitely going to be sort of very helpful. And it really does kind of touch on surviving and thriving through motherhood. But in any sense or in any way, is there any tip that you would like to share with the listeners about surviving and or thriving in life? I think to thrive as a parent, we have to learn to remember to put ourselves first. And this is important for our own happiness and that of our children. Um, If we're neglecting ourselves, what message does that give to our children, right? If we don't put ourselves first, it will continue the cycle and they'll learn that that is what you do as a parent. Whereas if you're less happy in the process, your children might be too. So put yourself first, find what makes you tick and find a way to get some downtime in however way you can. I think that's a fantastic tip. I totally agree with you on that. It's like I said, happy mothers make happy babies, you Absolutely. know, um, they really do. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Super Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Superbrain is a labour of love, born of a desire to empower people to use their brain to thrive in life and attain their true potential. You can now go ad-free on patreon.com forward slash superbrain for the price of a coffee. 
Please help me reach as many people as possible by sharing this episode. Imagine if we could get to a million downloads by word of mouth alone. I believe it is possible. I believe that great things happen when lots of people do little things. Visit sabinabrennan.ie for the Super Brain blog with full transcripts, links and the like. Follow me on Instagram at Sabina Brennan and on Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan. Tune in on Thursday for another booster shot from me and on Monday for another fascinating interview with an inspiring guest. Thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.